Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin New and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. So this month we are covering the events of May um, 2022. We're going to go over some great news on fees at the beginning. We're going to cover some updates on the new Borders Act. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Rwanda, not much, and, and asylum a bit more broadly. And um, also cover some business immigration and detention and bail things at the end of the podcast. If you are a lawyer and you need to claim CPD points for um, you know, getting trained and up to date and so on, then we've um, got loads of materials online for you and you can do a short quiz to show that you've listened and assimilated the information in the podcast, um, head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training if you would like to do that. Right, CJ, um, let's get started. Thanks, Colin. We'll start with those child citizenship fees that you mentioned. There is indeed good news. Uh, We discussed many a time before on here, I think, uh, these non-British children who grew up in the UK They're entitled to register as British citizens, but it costs over £1,000 and many families end up being priced out of that entitlement. But now, after much campaigning and litigation and so on, uh, we have ourselves a fee waiver policy. So families can now put in a request to get their child's registration application processed for free. And that was published on the 26th of May, alongside changes to the fee regulations, the statutory instrument. But the immigration minister, Kevin Foster, also said that these fee waiver applications won't be possible until the 16th of June. So a few days longer to wait, but not much longer. So who qualifies for one of these fee waivers? Well, any child in care, first of all, uh, and then other children where, uh, in the language of the regulations, the Secretary of State considers that the fee is not affordable. So that's the the key test. And then the written policy goes into much more detail about what affordable and unaffordable means, um, the need to have uh, clear and compelling evidence uh, that it's not affordable and stuff like that. So uh, free citizenship for needy children, let the good times roll. Yeah, and, and looking at the, the terms of the policy, is that the Home Office is often very, very reluctant to grant fee waivers in other contexts. And um, this policy sort of follows that that quite um, resistant line. But it, it, it's not as bad as it might be. There is some quite good material on best interests of children. Um, I think it, it will be hard for people to do this on their own. Um, I, I, you know, lawyers who are sort of familiar with fee waivers will be in a better position to help people with this. Although, of course, you know, the problem is if you need a fee waiver, then actually affording the help from a lawyer is going to be difficult. Um, there are charities, law centres, um, also the project for the registration of children as British citizens um, can, can help with this kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it is it is good news. I mean, obviously, I think we'd have rather they just scrapped the fee or reduced it massively um but but this is you know uh, this is definitely a good development yeah the new statesman magazine has an exclusive analysis showing how much money the home office has made over the years by charging these high fees the the surplus or the profit because they charge so much more than the estimated processing cost on each application um and i would just like to point out that you beat them to that idea by uh, some four years because we actually ran these numbers in 2018 um at that point the figure was 94 million pounds over five years just from these child registration fees uh, the, the surplus amount uh, the new statesman now says over 200 million since 2010 uh, either way, it's it, it, like it's genuinely a non-trivial amount of money, even to a department as big as the Home Office. So you can see why they might have been reluctant to let it go uh, entirely. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the Home Office is in a bit of a bind with some of this stuff. To, to some extent, I really don't feel like being terribly sympathetic to the Home Office, frankly. But, you know, they, they, they have had serious budget cuts. And rather than doing what I think we'd rather that they did, um, like, you know, reducing the amount of, um, sort of enforcement stuff they do on on nuts stuff, you know, the kind of raids on employers and landlords and marriage stuff where there's very, very little outcome from a lot of that stuff. You know, they're just kind of a lot of doing a lot of performance of sort of border control without actually any outcomes from it and interfering with people's lives massively. They, you know, they could cut that back or... Well, they have, to be fair. We also did that analysis a few years ago, do you remember? And, and it showed that a lot of that activity had gone down and, and the spending by, by not a huge amount. But Yeah, to, I, I, think, I think that is right. Yeah, to be fair, to be fair. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd rather see them sort of cut back on stuff than to sort of try and uh, basically make money out of children becoming citizens and, and just sort of outrageously high application fees that we see. Yeah, it's, it's really milking people. Um, more information anyway on the child registration policy from the uh, Project for Registration of Children as British Citizens, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, they have FAQs and briefings and they're very up to speed, as you would expect. Next up, the Borders Act was passed into law in April and it's gradually coming into force. A key date for your diaries is the 28th of June, because on that day, a number of Borders Act provisions come into force, some automatically under Section 87 of the Act, and some more by virtue of the first commencement order, which was issued recently. So important things like the two-tier refugee status, inadmissibility, safe third countries, all the stuff that makes it easier to get people sent to Rwanda or make them wish they had been. There are also some changes to the immigration rules coming in on the 20th of June as well to coincide with these commencement provisions. And here we get a bit more detail on the the two different types of refugees. So instead of just plain old refugee status, there is now the two types. There's what's called refugee permission to stay, which is the proper source. You get to stay for five years on a pathway to settlement. And then the second type is temporary refugee permission to stay. And that's the crap type where you only get 30 months permission to stay at a time although Colin as you pointed out people can probably just renew those 30 months until they hit 10 years and then settle under the long residence rule Um, it's also possible on paper I highlighted this in the piece to sort of pitch to not be in the temporary group it does say that in exceptional circumstances uh, you won't be put in the temporary category so at least in theory, it's not totally rigid. Um, and the final point to note on that statement of changes is that humanitarian protection status, which is traditionally a, a sort of a sister category to refugee status, you had many of the same rights and benefits, that's been totally downgraded. So under the rules changes, there will only be temporary humanitarian protection, the 30 months at a time um, for people who apply after the 28th of June. And proper humanitarian protection the, the five years at a time is, is just a thing of the past yeah this is the kind of thing i was just talking about with um you know wish the home office would do less in some way so you know forcing people to reapply repeatedly and therefore have to assess the applications just creating work for themselves and you know massive backlogs already 
But I should also say this is an example of a, a Brexit dividend as far as um, Pretty Patel is concerned, I suppose, because EU law that the UK was signed up to required um, the grant of five years of status to refugees and also in humanitarian protection, subsidiary protection, as it's known in EU law. Um, and so they're able to downgrade that. Um, but, you know, it, it just seems so utterly pointless, basically, because they will eventually qualify for settlement. Um, it's just going to take longer, more insecurity, more work for the Home Office, more work for the for the refugee. Let's talk briefly, as you say, about Rwanda. And here we depart a little from our usual rule of only covering developments in the last calendar month because it's highly topical and things are happening. On the 8th of June, legal experts gave evidence to Parliament's Human Rights Committee on whether the plan to send refugees from the UK to to Africa complies with the UK's international legal obligations. And we have one of those experts on the show, uh, Colin Yeo. What did you tell uh, the MPs and Lords? It was was an interesting evidence session and sort of trying to concentrate on really whether the proposals were compatible with the Refugee Convention and also talk about the kind of human rights implications of, of what's going on. And it was um, me and uh, my head of chambers, um, Stephanie Harrison QC, who were giving evidence on the legal stuff. And then there was a, an expert on Rwanda who was painting a very rosy picture, I have to say, of Rwanda. I don't know if she was pitching for a job as a sort of home office expert witness or something. But um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting evidence session. Seemed to go well. Committee seemed um, sort of receptive to the arguments we were trying to make um, about what, what the law is on the Refugee Convention. But who knows what happens after these things? You know, Maybe they'll do a report, maybe they won't. And certainly it's not going to make any difference to the Home Office, which is a bit depressing. No, but uh, some of these issues will be thrashed out in court because the charity Care for Calais has issued judicial review proceedings uh, to challenge the policy on the sort of grand scale rather than individual level. Uh, That's listed as we speak for tomorrow, the 10th of June, just as this podcast goes out. um, And they are seeking interim relief and injunction uh, to put removals on hold while this challenge goes ahead. Uh, But the first flight to Rwanda is planned for the 14th of June. So time is pressing. The Immigration Inspector David Neal has ordered a review of the policy sort of More precisely, he's reviewing the country information documents that the Home Office is relying on to justify the policy because he can't question policy as such, but he can review documents such as those. Um, The report he's commissioned is due back uh, on the 8th of July, so that may be a a further development on country conditions in Rwanda, um, which I think as you have written or perhaps said, Colin, how people are treated in Rwanda once they're sent there may turn out to be key to the legality of the whole scheme in UK law. Yeah, I, well, that depends on that. That would be the case, I think, for individual challenges. Um, you know, some poor souls might end up being sent. And then if they are badly treated, you know, be treated like canaries in the coal mine, I said to the to the committee, um, if, if, if bad things happen to them, then um, other people won't be sent because it's, you know, there's a real risk that bad things would happen. Um, so it's very unfortunate for people who get sent as kind of um, as, as the canaries. Um, but for the treatment in Rwanda probably isn't the kind of basis of the more systemic challenge that charities might be bringing. Um, that would be more about compatibility with the refugee convention sort of conceptually and and in domestic law and everything as well. So, um, but yeah, the, and you mentioned the date of this flight. So it's the, the 14th of June, which is, is next week as we're speaking now. And um, it, it's notably before 
the commencement date of a lot of the Nationality and Borders Act, which is the 28th of June. And, and it's all, why the Home Office couldn't have waited a fortnight um, to, to use all these fancy new powers that they've granted themselves um, is, is a bit of a mystery. But um, yeah, it, it means that they're relying, we think, on on quite out-of-date you know, laws that go back to, to 2004 that weren't drafted with this kind of thing in mind, which perhaps might give legal challenges a bit more chance of success than, than under, the, under the Borders Act regime, which comes in from a fortnight after the flight. Um, we'll have to see. Yeah, so, so I suppose you might get a legal victory that says the existing regime does not authorise transfers to Rwanda, but then the Home Office just turns around and organises another flight on the 28th and you're back to square one from the legal perspective. Yeah, and I'm sure they wouldn't be upset to be back in court, you know, fighting their hated activist lawyers and all that all over again. Let's move to some case law on the asylum and we go first of all to the Court of Justice of the European Union on the issue of Palestinian refugees. The background here is that Palestinians are often denied refugee status in many countries on the basis that they have their own special refugee body, the UN Works and Relief Agency and Article 1D of the Refugee Convention says that Palestinians have to go to that agency for help unless protection from it has ceased. And this was a case referred from the UK before Brexit, asking the Court of Justice several questions about this whole Article 1D issue, uh, including whether the words has ceased means that you only look at the situation at the time the Palestinian asylum seeker left the region, or do you look at the situation now and ask, well, can the Works and Relief Agency provide them with refugee protection today if they went back? Uh, and the Court of Justice answer was, well, it's both. Do you look at the circumstances at the time of the applicant's departure from UNRWA's area of operation um, and the circumstances at the time they apply for asylum? So that could be good or bad for asylum seekers, sort of depending on how the situation on the ground has developed, I guess. So if they leave um, the region and things deteriorate, then Perhaps they could get asylum in Europe, but if they've left and things improve um, by the time they apply for asylum, uh, they could be denied us on the basis that they should go back to the UNRWA jurisdiction. Uh, the citation of that, C349-20, NB and AB, and Secretary of State for the Home Department. We've had a few big cases from the Courts Justice of the European Union over the last sort of um, few years on um, Article 1D and, and Palestinian refugees, and some of them look kind of designed to be unhelpful to Palestinian refugees, perhaps, and to make it harder for them to to claim asylum successfully. This one seems broadly positive, I think. Um, there is some stuff on whether NGOs uh, are, you know, this, the assistance that's provided to Palestinians by NGOs is relevant to whether um, protection is provided by UNRWA, but, and that's n- perhaps not that helpful. Um, but um, it, it's a pretty good case, actually. It, it's you know, if you are representing Palestinians, this this looks like it's probably good news. It's not binding, of course, you know, because EU law is no longer um, sort of binding on on UK judges. But it's influential, and I'm sure that the UK courts would certainly be interested in the conclusions that were reached here. We also have a new country guidance case on Iraq. The upper tribunal has revisited the vexed issue of ID cards in that country. The issue being whether someone who's removed from the UK to Iraq will be able to get an ID card, which is very important for surviving day to day by all accounts. 
the answer of whether people can get ID cards once they're sent back is kind of, it depends. There's a, a new digital Iraqi ID card being rolled out, the INID, uh, and you have to, as I understand it, turn up in person to a local office to get one of those. And the effect of that seems to be that it's more difficult to remove Iraqis um, because people who arrive without ID might not be allowed to pass through internal checkpoints to get to their local office to get the ID card. So it's sort of a chicken and egg situation. Um, Eva Dorr has more in her analysis of this decision on the website. The case citation is SMO and KSP Civil Status Documentation, Article 15, Iraq CG, 2022-UKUT-110-IAC. Yeah, and just to sort of come in at the end here, again, it looks like a helpful case. And as I understand it, it was pretty crucial in the uh, eventual cancellation of a a charter flight to Iraq um, just in the last few days. It it does make it harder for the Home Office to successfully return people. Not not impossible, perhaps, but um, does does seem to make it harder. Also from the Upper Tribunal, a look at the exclusion clauses of the Refugee Convention. This is where people can be denied refugee status if they are a war criminal or they've committed uh, a serious non-political crime. The upper tribunal takes a look at these concepts. They say what amounts to a war crime has to be assessed by reference to international law, including the Rome Statute establishing the International Criminal Court. And then on a serious non-political crime, uh, they find that in this case, if you are a police officer in a repressive regime and you hand people over to be tortured, uh, that does count as a serious non-political crime, which seems Sensible, the judgment KM exclusion article 1FA, article 1FB, 2022 UKUT125 IAC. Um, Nat says it's a useful review of existing law, Colin, but maybe not anything that changes the law as such. No, I don't. I don't think there's anything particularly sort of novel about it. And you know, these exclusion issues don't come up that often, um, thankfully, in in, in cases. Um, but it, it looks like it. You know, it's, it, if you're wanting to work out how the exclusion clauses work and go into detail on that, look at things like the the relevance of the Rome Statutes and so on. That's it, it's a helpful case for kind of talking you through how it works, basically. So, a, a useful addition to the uh, to the to the kind of pantheon of, of tribunal case law. Absolutely. Not always the case, as uh, we sometimes gripe. Just to note then that there is a new type of visa available as of the 30th of May, the high potential individual route. Uh, Of course, there's nothing truly new under the sun. And this high potential visa is similar to the old highly skilled migrant program or tier one general um, in the sense that you don't need a sponsor to get the visa uh, to come and work in the UK, which is unusual and nice for people who get it. But um, it is uh, very highly restrictive and it's only available to graduates of a handful of universities, um, non-UK universities. These are ones that appear in the top 50 of at least two of the three main global university rankings, the Times Higher Education and a couple of other big ones. So uh, this year, there's only 37 such institutions on the list. So if you're a graduate uh, in 2022-23 of 37 universities, you can get this visa, otherwise you're out of luck. The rankings do change um, from year to year, and and that means so does the eligibility um, for the visa. So if your university doesn't make the cut in the year that you graduate and then you can't get the visa even if it was on the list before and and does again so overall i mean it's a bit of fun but 
you wouldn't expect large numbers of people to be getting this visa compared to the kind of mainstream sponsored work routes. No, I guess not. I mean, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this and we'll see what the stats look like over time, I guess. But um, I can't imagine it's going to be, it's going to be sort of significant numbers of people. Um, it's and it's you know it's another attempt by the Home Office to come up with a kind of proxy for for some sort of idea of success in life or something. That I, it's not quite sure what they're getting at with these these kind of visas, where they want people who are. You know, they 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 come up with the sort of brightest and the best phrases and so on. As it, people are likely to make a significant contribution to, you know, I don't know, earn a lot of money or what. I, I'm not quite sure what they really mean by all this stuff. What it is that they're trying to get out of it? And this is their their latest attempt. Instead of having kind of points um, that are scored for various different qualities or, or, or levels of experience or whatever it is, this time it's just what what university did you go to? Yeah, I suppose it is in a way a kind of giving up on that idea of an Australian points-based system where you, yeah, you earn points for your personal characteristics and um, speak English education, um, willingness to work in certain regions, whatever. Um, it is just a blunt instrument of like, have you got a degree, any degree from one of these elite institutions and, and then you come. Moving finally to immigration detention and bail, which is not a subject we've talked about in a while, I think, which may be a good sign, but there's been a report out from the well-regarded charity Medical Justice, and they have looked at the process for identifying vulnerable detainees who should be given bail for medical or mental health reasons, or if they're a torture survivor, this this is the so-called Rule 35 process. And the medical justice doctors that go into detention centres, they compared their clinical assessments with the Rule 35 reports or lack of from the detention center doctors. Um, And they found a big gap, basically. The in-house medics identified uh, way fewer cases of PTSD and suicidal thoughts and and so on um, than the independent doctors did. So I don't know, like detention conditions seem to have improved in some respects in recent years um, with the Shaw review and things like that. There, There are fewer people in detention, but this report, I think, shows that there's still a lot of human suffering going on. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that detention conditions have improved. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, but you know, the stats show that the number in immigration detention or experiencing immigration detention mm-hmm. um, does seem to have, have fallen significantly since the um, first short review. Um, but I, I think a lot of people have been concerned that although fewer people are being detained, uh, it seems like. It's, the, it's very much the wrong people being detained. It's like, obviously, mm-hmm. nobody got detained. But the, the, the people who are in detention now do seem to be quite often very vulnerable and the sort of people that the Home Office say they don't want to detain and yet somehow mysteriously do end up detaining. And, you know, the, the problem here is, is Rule 35 is, is a even if it worked really well, it's still a really rubbish safeguard, frankly. It, you know, it, it's just not a good, it's not a good way of doing things anyway, because it's basically, um, based, it's based on torture. And that's, that's not, that's not the only thing about a, pers- a person that might be, might make them vulnerable and unsuitable for, for detention. And there've been attempts to kind of widen it out, but basically it's, it's a rubbish safeguard anyway, even if it worked and it just doesn't work either. So it's kind of double, double problem there, which is um, really, really exposing a lot of people unnecessarily to, um, to to really awful experiences in immigration detention. A different NGO, Migrants Organize, have written a piece for us highlighting that people who 
are out on bail from detention uh, can now report to the Home Office by phone rather than in person. So the enforcement people uh, still need to check that you haven't gone on the lam, but you can be given a window to answer the phone to them uh, rather than travel and sign on in person. And uh, it's significant. And there's been another report um, from a a third organization, the Greater Manchester Immigration Aid Unit, looking at reporting conditions, um, this signing on process and how that has a very negative effect on children and young people in particular. And they call it living in constant fear, uh, the title of the report, which gives a flavor. Um, And they say, I mean, you know, by the sounds of it, they don't really want anyone detained or deported ever, which which is fine. But I suppose short of that, they do think um, that telephone reporting w- that's now being brought in um, is better than the in-person kinds and would address some of the report's concerns about the system, although by no means all. Yeah, I think it's us um, perhaps inadvertently returning to our, our, our attempt to end on a, a vaguely good news story, isn't it? Um, we, we, did, we did go through a phase of managing to do that. I think it kind of uh, fell off again. But uh, no, this this does look like a, a, a good news change. Um, reporting in person is just it's humiliating for people. You know, they have to kind of travel long distances sometimes. So, yeah, there's the convenience and everything as well, but it's kind of this bureaucratic humiliation that it involves as well of going along and, and for no real reason and, and sort of putting your name down and everything. So no, this is this this does look like an improvement. And I think that um that sort of concludes this month. And I'll I'll, I'll leave people with a thought, you know, if as seems likely, some people face removal to Rwanda at some point. I mean, who, who knows whether the 14th of June um, flight will go ahead. But at, at some point, I'd have thought that one of these flights will go with some people on it. Um, you know, The number of people um, who have claimed asylum who are um, reporting is likely to fall. Um, people won't want to report if there's a risk of, of being detained and, and sent to Rwanda, even if it is a, a tiny risk. You know, I, I imagine a, a small number of people might face removal there eventually compared to the um, tens of thousands, over 100,000 people now, I think, who are on the, the waiting list for an asylum decision. But, you know, if there is a risk of that happening to them, they'll, they'll just sort of um, drop, off the, drop off the radar probably. Okay, well, that wraps things up for this month. Um, Thanks for listening. Hope it's been helpful and we'll be back next month. Goodbye.